Hello, all, and welcome to everyone's favorite movie podcast, Remainders. If you're new to the show, we are a podcast that explores the wonderful art of filmmaking. We talk about old movies, new movies, uh, talkies, silence, I mean, everything in between. And joining me is my co-host, Patrick McIntyre, who used to work with me at a little little movie store called Suncoast Video. So every week we get together and discuss a movie. This week we'll be talking about Fritz Lang's favorite film, the 1931 film M. And Patrick, before we start, I just needed to set the stage. I need to set the mood, okay? You ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> I can't do it without laughing. I knew I was gonna laugh. <laughs> I mean, I knew exactly where it was going, not by the whistling, but by the um, by the song in the Hall of the Mountain King. And I had to look it up uh, today because I did not know the name of that song. Uh, and that was a I mean, thank you for that intro, man. Never felt so special. Um, welcome, everyone. Nice to uh, talk to you all. Um, yeah, that was that was perfect. That set the story that sets the stage for this conversation. I've been looking forward to talking to you about this anyway. Uh, yeah, this is Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say we've been uh, maybe jumping ahead. This is the this is the whistling that goes uh, the recurring motif throughout this movie. Uh, this 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 creeper of a fucking movie and that uh, nice little whistle you got there. So, <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny because uh, this is like a film that I have watched so many years back, and I remember you know I feel like I'm a smarter guy now that I'm older, but who knows? But regardless, when I was younger, I didn't really know too much about films and stuff. I just kind of took it in from the shock value alone of what you're watching. And so if you really let yourself immerse yourself in this film, it's, it's, it's very disturbing. Um, film about a child murderer. I mean, I don't know how much more disturbing you can get, but I think it's also, as I'm sure we'll explore, veiled a little bit in some political uh, discussions and you know, being made around the time uh, in between World War I and World War II, um, Fritz Lang, German filmmaker and um, Peter Lorre with those bug eyes. I mean, this film has it all. It's really terrifying, I would say. Those bug eyes definitely got him a lot of roles, I'd say, early in his career. Until, and then they realized how great of an actor he was. But uh, I'm sure they helped uh, in the early days. Putting those eyes on screen was uh, seemed like a must. For sure. And before we get into talking about terrifying stuff, uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about what you've been doing uh, leading up to this episode. So we just did, if everybody's listening and first catching, um, we have a bunch of episodes. This is episode, I believe, 33. Um, and Sounds we, good. Yeah, and we had one on Babylon versus the artist last week, which is also great which was in between we wanted to do like a little bit of a um, short before M, but before Babylon versus the artist, we did discuss Fritz Lang's film and Pat, uh, you know, we wanted to do this season a little bit more of a, um, I don't know, kind of like more of a thematic uh, remainders season. Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, it, I think it's in line with our time uh, working at the video store and everything uh, we've talked about ever since um, movie wise. Um, and then also just kind of going into the, how much we love our theaters our, our uh, kind of uh, local theaters. Uh, I'm at the music box all the time. I got some updates and what I've been doing, uh, catching a couple of good stuff there uh, lately, but yeah, just uh, really 
showing a connection. I like the the idea of a series of movies, uh, some double features, some triple features. I think this is a good way to explore like directors, actors, certain genres. Uh, I mean, I definitely want to do a creature feature uh, series at some point uh, this year. Um, and so, yeah, this is a uh, part two of our Fritz Lang uh, double feature. And I, I mean, I think it's going to only add to like the conversation of, um, you know, because I had not seen either one of these like in uh, many, many years. And you're definitely more of an expert on Fritz, Fritz Lang. And so like me being able to catch up with both of them is definitely just going to help the help my understanding and, and definitely makes it so much more interesting watching this after Metropolis. Uh, it's, it's, it's fucking great. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about a silent and then uh, fast forward to a film that is made during the talking era. And this film, of course, M is during the talking era, but there's a lot of silence in this film. And, you know, I think Roger Ebert had, a, I read this on the Wikipedia that Roger Ebert said that he loved this film because even though it was made in a time of early talkies, Fritz Lang didn't feel the need to fill it with a bunch of talking like a lot of um, people had done because this was the new it thing, the new technology, I guess you could call it. And everybody had decided to fill their films with so much talking, so much sound, it almost over inundated uh, the audience with it. But Fritz Lang, being a true artist, realized the benefit the film could have with some silence. And at times it's funny, you're watching this film in this day and age and you hear like absolute silence and it's, and it's yeah. seen where you think there should be some at least marching going on or whatever, because there's a lot of people coming to like either find um, Peter Laurie, his, his character's name is Hans, uh, and when he's hiding out and you're thinking, I'm, I'm supposed to be hearing these feet, these footsteps and everything. But the point is they're supposed to be quiet so that nobody can hear them, so that Hans doesn't hear them coming. And then the audience is like, Oh, you know, in on this kind of silence part, which is really like a cool move. Um, so it's it's weird. It's kind of bridging the gap between silent films and talking films. Um, and that's why I kind of love that we did and covered Metropolis before this one. Metropolis also relies heavily on so much more like art direction. Um, when I believe like M is really dealing so much with shadows and light and um, kind of more cinema, it's more more cinematic in that sense. Hell yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well, I mean, I guess we're already into it. We should probably just keep on talking about the movie and then and catch up on stuff later because I definitely have some updates for you. Maybe push that to the music section. Um, what, 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 how about you give a uh, brief uh, synopsis of what this movie is about? Uh, yeah. Just maybe like a two sentence thing. I and you're right. Yeah. So everybody listening, sorry, we sometimes start out with a little bit of update about what we've been doing. But yeah, we're kind of di we're deep. We're diving in right away. So we're just going to go and we get too excited to talk about the movie sometimes. So yeah, we'll just yeah, go yeah. we like to share a little bit about what we're doing. It's to kind of let you know about the new movies that we think are cool and stuff like that. But we'll share that at the end, as well as we always have, um, you know, songs of the week. And I have one this week to share. And I'm sure you do as well. But the synopsis of this movie really is simple. It's um, the first of its kind to explore murder in a very um, frightening and terrifying way that has to do with children. Um, it opens up with children playing and kind of having this like story about, um, you know, a killer. And there's this one on the loose played by Peter Lorre. His name's Hans Beckert. And everybody is sort of, working class kind of lower than middle class neighborhood and there's this killer on the loose um the cops are on to him but also the townspeople which play a big role too because the cops and the townspeople don't really want to 
mingle. I feel like the townspeople think that the cops are just going to put them in jail when they want to just go after. Like, I mean, this is tragic. Their, their children are being killed one by one. Um, and so they don't want any kind of justice for this killer. They, they're out for blood. They want, a, you know, an eye for an eye. Um, so we're really seeing this through it's kind of um, a Zodiac, like before it's time as well. He's uh, <clears throat> doing a lot of um, messages to the newspaper and the cops won't publish it, but the newspapers will, right? I mean, there's just like a lot of similarities there with the Zodiac killer. And um, so they're trying to find out like, you know, whose handwriting it is, where was it written on? And the cops are getting close, as the movie goes on, the cops are getting closer, but the townspeople are getting closer to finding out who it is as well. And the reason we opened the beginning of this movie with that whistles, because that is like the sign that the killer is there and is going to kill again. Um, kind of anytime you see one of the children just kind of being free spirited out in the world and you hear that whistle, it's kind of, oh, this is doomsday. This is going to be bad. And I love to, and maybe this is going too far, but the person who outs them is, is, is someone who's blind, you know, yeah. the person who figures it out is someone who can hear that instead of uh, see the person. And then the great scene that goes through, we finally are able to mark him. The, the film's called M, you know, I would imagine short for murderer, um, but they're able to mark his jacket with an M and that means, uh, you know, he's unaware as he walks around that people now know who he is and then they chase him down and he goes on trial with uh, the townspeople before he gets turned over to the cops. That's the synopsis of the movie. Uh, so when he gets slapped on the back with the M to get marked, uh, I was thinking it maybe stood for malarkey, but uh, murder uh, makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No more malarkey, uh, as Joe Biden would say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, that's, that was a perfect setup because, man, yeah, this is, I mean, procedural drama. Uh, you definitely nailed it because I was definitely thinking of Zodiac uh, the entire time uh, I was watching this. Um, so I haven't seen this in like, uh, uh, that probably take 20 years. Um, so this is definitely the first time catching it in a long time. Uh, so it was definitely good to revisit it. Um, yes, I was uh blown away by like i just how much i kind of felt like this is this, this is an early uh it was one of the first talking movies one of the first talkies it was, like you called it at the time uh like and it's crazy that um how advanced it feels like how comfortable and like filled in and alive the movie feels when it's like just uh, they were still trying to figure out as we've been uh, kind of seeing with babylon and uh, uh the artists like how how difficult it was to transition from silent films to talkies at the time. And this one just feels like so comfortable and confident. Uh, but yeah, like early procedural drama, early manhunt movie. Uh, this is just like half the movies, him getting chased down by the mob. So it feels like something like the fugitive or um, even something like night of the hunter we were watching earlier. I mean, just like uh, so much of an early template for those types of movies to come before it. And like I said, like between this and Metropolis, it's like Fritz Lang was the fucking man back in the day because everything uh, going forward has been drawn on him. Yeah, I mean, that's why he had such a great career. Yeah. Uh, he was really like, you know, a true artist who understood storytelling. And you're right. Um, it's it's in German. Uh, but over time, it was um, I think three, two years later, I read that it was dubbed into English. I've never seen that version. Mm. Um but, you know, in, in German, it's it's something you have to pay attention to because there is a lot of talking and there's a lot of setup scenes. Um, 
sort of with when the cops are talking and different things like that. Uh, this is definitely one you need to put your, your cell phone away for and yeah. enjoy yeah. the ride for sure. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely thinking that there was a lot of uh, plot points of terms of like what I mean, half the movie is them investigating uh, um, Hans and um, and trying to figure out like, where he's possibly uh, coming from who he is what leads I mean, like I said, like it feels like uh, Zodiac to a T. Um, and the Zodiac killer, like, I would not be surprised if like he got his inspiration to send all the letters to the newspaper because of this movie. Like, I mean, it, it blew my mind, like seeing like how much of like a plot point that was clearly in this movie and, and then just how much uh, of an integral part of it was with that actual killer and then the movie itself. So, um, yeah, it sounds like this is sort of the blueprint for most, right. uh, you know, psychological thrillers that have ever been made. Um, it's, uh, ahead of its time, Fritz Lang said that it was his favorite film he's ever made. Peter Lorre obviously killing it. That scene at the end when he's on trial and he says that he can't help himself, that, hey, I know he's on trial basically against um, uh, the townspeople who are all sort of blue collar criminals, right? You know, there are people who have stolen stuff or whatever, but they're, they've, cho- he, his point is they've chosen to, to, to have this life, you know, that they choose to, to steal. And he's saying, I can't choose. I have this murder, murderous rage that I have to do to kill and I can't control it. None of, how do you, how can you guys judge me when you don't know? And it's kind of talking about the insanity defense, which I, I don't think was even part of the legal system until many years later. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, he's just basically saying that he uh, can't control himself, that he's out of control. And that's even more terrifying that there's somebody out on the loose that can't control the way they are, you know? Yeah. I mean, and also like, again, this is, what is this? 1931, right? It's legit. Like one of the first movies I'd say that actually like poses a question to the audience or to the viewer, where it's like, uh, where it's ambiguous about like what the story is and like what they're trying to tell you with the movie, because the movie, so like I said, like half the movie is basically the manhunt. And then, so the mob, overtakes him they beat him um to capture him before the cops do and they basically put him on trial in like an underground uh uh crime scene or um underground criminal lord uh and and so they are basically saying you can't go out uh into the world and we have to kill you and and like you said that that scene his monologue is insane insanely good uh i loved watching it he's such a good performance and and the like yeah like you said it 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 offers the audience like a question of like morality it's like what uh, what is it to kill a person who is you know uh not necessarily in control over his actions and then you know you know you can make your own you know uh decisions about that in real life but like in this movie it's basically presenting like this person has no control over their actions so what is it to commit that person to death when in in all honesty it's a mental illness um and so like i said like that that doing that at such a early age in film like this was so ahead of its time like i mean few other films were doing that even like years after this until uh uh decades later yeah it's almost kind of like at the ending of the film you're not sure if it's over or not 
it kind of fades to so abrupt yeah, yeah. well i mean like, it's there's certainly no <laughs> yeah so they uh yeah they basically sentence him to death but he i mean that hand on his shoulder is the cops i'm assuming the pull him in away pulling him away and then he's put on like an actual criminal uh justice trial um and it just uh, ends the movie like with uh showing the face of the, a couple of the mothers that may have lost their children and the anguish that they were going through and it doesn't you know it doesn't tell you like what the decision was it's just it presents you with this uh moral quandary uh that you can definitely go in many different ways on it but it, again like i said it doesn't tell you anything uh as a movie it's just uh, presenting this uh ambiguity to you yeah kind of like at this time through having seen it a few times before i thought even knowing the ending like I got to yeah. go backwards and like see if I something. They're like my, yeah. my computer's, you know, glitch or something. Cause it does end like that. And yeah, of course he's leaving it up to the audience to make your own decision about what happened to Peter Laurie's character. And Peter Laurie, by the way, it's those eyes. I can't imagine like any other actor that has those eyes like that. I mean, he is uh, even that scene when he's like hiding and you hear them like looking in the containers for him and he's kind of veiled a little bit in shadow and all you see is his eyes while they're like talking and trying to find him and like the fright that you feel and again it's like the old Hitchcock thing it's like you almost don't want them to catch him you want him to like get away with it it's so funny you want like the killer the bad guy to get away because you're kind of like stuck in this room with him and you're in but you said you see the reaction that he has about how scared he is that he's gonna get caught um as the audience you're like there in that room with him and he does such a great job of being terrified i mean yeah his his performance is fucking uh terrifying there is a scene when it's earlier before they start chasing him down kind of before they pinpoint who he is. So uh, maybe like a third into the movie um, he's standing uh, at a jewelry uh, store and he sees a girl like in a reflection. Oh yeah. He, oh my God, dude. And so he sees the girl, this little girl just playing in the reflection through the store and it, the camera just keeps it on his face. And you, you could just see his internal struggle of like what he's thinking uh by seeing this girl and like maybe trying to hold it back but then also just kind of like relishing in it fucking terrifying yeah <laughs> just with just his face uh conveying all that fucking horrendous shit man oh it's so good that scene is amazing yeah and just like yeah. the, the idea of like looking in the mirror and the duality of like the character like the, the that struggle with like he even talks about it later on he's like it's almost like i'm watching myself i'm shadowing myself you know and see so uh masterful work by fritz lane here um setting up these scenes and really showing the complexity of the character of hans played by peter Lorre. um there's a lot of things that are interesting to take away about um justice right like what is justice at the end of this and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that one thing we skipped over here that the audience probably is wondering uh, if they've seen this before is about that the townspeople say no cops. They've they think that they've got Peter Laurie trapped in this like sort of workers building 
Um, cause at night they close the gates and they think they have him trapped inside there. They, they know he's trapped inside there, but they need to get in there, but they don't want to alert the cops again, because they think that the cops are going to just like, let him go. He's going to get off easy. He's going to go to jail. Yeah, maybe, but claim insanity and then get out, you know, if you, and then kill again. So there's like a distrust. And, you know, I always like to look at films when I watch them about like the time period that they're living in, like what in 1931 Germany would you be, would that be a feeling for? And um, there's a lot about Fritz Lang about his hatred for the Nazis. I mean, even Peter Lorre had escaped Nazi Germany because he was Jewish. Um, you know, that that's the kind of, world that they were living in and that's what i love about films too is that like i really try to put myself in the time period that they were made you know one time i went to the art institute i remember and they uh, did a um paintings of uh artists during the depression you know and you're looking at what these people had painted you know a lot some masters but some people that weren't you know just regular people and what they were painting they're obviously painting the world around them and i always love that quote that i think it's for artists it's your duty to um comment on the world you're living in right and so that's why this movie is so poignant you know around the time of i mean pretty soon after this film i mean we're talking about world war ii oh. So, I mean, so true. I mean, yeah, like it was, it was so like, uh, not like overt, uh, kind of that distrust of cops, but like you said, like when you're actually realizing who was making this movie and the time and the place, uh, that's entirely what it was. I mean, I think I saw something, um, uh, it might've been like in a, in a video and it was researching, but like, um, I think Joseph Goebbels was like a huge fan of Metropolis when it first came out and he was trying to like uh, kind of uh, covertly like give uh, Fritz Lang like a pass, you know, uh, because they were such a fan of the movie. They were like, and basically saying, we decide who who's Jewish uh, in this time. And it, it just like, it was so fucking chill. And it was, and obviously Fritz Lang was like, fuck off, um, uh, fortunately. And it just, it, it, it just, it just was such an insight into like, just how fucking insane of a time it must have been, like, especially in that position of Fritz Lang, like this artist, Jewish, working uh, in Germany. Insane. I mean, there's a lot of different directors around this time. Um, George Stevens um, and Frank Capra, you know, that obviously we're talking, those are American filmmakers, Fritz Lang being a German filmmaker, but so much of that time period, so much of the, of these films that we're talking about are born out of war, you know, and, yeah. and, and they're docu they're documenting of war. I mean, I know for instance, Frank Capra was, um, you know, filmmaker in the war documenting what was happening and what was going on and can't imagine the things that they were seeing. And then they go, that's why Frank Capra made such great, you know, amazing, good spirited and lighthearted films because he, America was sick of seeing death and despair and all the terrible things that you saw at war, right? Um, so yeah, great period of time for films to be being made. Have you read uh, the book Five Came Back? I have not. I have not, but there's a yeah. Netflix documentary that I've been meaning to like really sit down and immerse. Yeah, yeah. I know they adapted it, but I've been for whatever reason I just had not gotten to the book. Uh, but yeah, I've always been meaning to it uh, about five uh, directors making uh, films during World War II, John Ford being one of them. But yeah, like I definitely need to 
check both the documentary and the book out because it's definitely a missing piece. I'm sure. Yeah, it's, I don't know uh, why. Like both of us seriously were talking about this. Obviously, both have an interest in it. We haven't seen, you know, the Netflix documentary. Maybe that's next on my list for sure. Yeah, I feel like I just haven't watched the documentary because once I watch or read the, I want to read the book first and then watch the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But yeah, I mean, this this film is something that I, it's stuck with me for a long time. I've, I've, I've had this like steering image of that scene where he puts the M on his back and they, you know, they finally are like, and he's like close, like there's that scene too, where like as the audience, he, Fritz Lang, or I'm sorry, uh, Peter Laurie is with that little girl and he pulls out the knife and you think, oh shit, he's going to kill her. And there's this guy watching her because he, he knows he's got to mark him so that everybody, we don't lose him, you know, so he doesn't get away. And this knife comes out and he's really just cutting up an orange to like whatever. But like in that split second that the knife comes out, you think he's going to kill the girl. (laughs) That's pretty scary. Yeah. So like the second half of this movie, I was thinking a lot about uh, Tim Roth in The Hateful Eight. Um, And he's got that great speech about justice, um, talking about societal justice. Like he lays it out, like what a traditional societal justice is uh, put on trial among your peers and then, uh, voted guilty or not guilty, and then uh, the hangman takes care of it. Or there's frontier justice, where it's the the mob basically coming in to take the murderer away and kill them right on the spot. And it's like such a great uh, uh, monologue, like two minute monologue by Tim Roth. But uh, it was just really reminded me of that because it is so succinctly uh, put into that. And this movie again, like an early template of showing that uh, that uh, push and pull between the two. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny. It's like you know, even movies like the Liam Neeson, like the Taken series, right? It's like, yeah, you know how you, (laughs) but that's the thing is like all those movies have that same template. It's like, I'm taking the law into my own hands because I can't trust that anything is going to get done. The legal system takes forever. You know, there's people out and in the meantime, they're going to kill 30 more people. Right. Fuck it. I'm going out there as Liam Neeson. I'm going to kill all these people. Like John Wick, right? You know, all that shit. (laughs) Man, I can't speak for the sequels, but the original Taken is a pretty satisfying fucking movie. Oh, yeah. So fun to watch. I agree 100%. And yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot to, to take in for this film. I'm glad that you had seen it. I, I, I know for sure back in the day that I talked to you a lot about it, you know, that I really loved it when I first saw it. And seeing it again, knowing it's, it's on Criterion for anybody out there who wants to watch it. Um, and HBO on. Max, actually. So yeah, because I again, I think HBO Max has something to do with Criterion. I know like, they have a huge amount of Criterion films. Uh, like they've had that ever since the, they started, and it's just a huge. They don't really talk about it too much. You don't. They don't really get pushed uh, to the front, like when you're on the interface. But like, if you're looking for Criterion movies, obviously Criterion Channel is your best bet. But like, um, just anything Criterion, always start with uh, HBO Max as well, because uh, amazing selection. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that they may not be pushing that because they don't want you to not do both subscriptions. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, I loved our, um, our we were texting earlier this week about the essential streaming services. Uh, and we determined the two uh, that uh, are never going to go away, which came down to Criterion and Shudder. Uh, yeah. So you can always <laughs> rely on those two being the essential uh, go-tos for this podcast at least and I'm I pretty, honestly I'm thought that was like that. a perfect image that you because Pat made this meme you can see it on our Instagram but uh, <laughs> it's just like two hands like forming together and one says shutter and one says criterion and then you know the hands combined say remainders <laughs> and it is it's like if you had to put it and sum it up that was like the perfect way I thought 
What's the uh, the predator mean? You know, I mean, did you, you recognize it? that's uh, Arnold? I did it. Yeah, yeah. So everybody can, I'm sure, recognize that. Uh, oh, such a such a perfect meme generator for that one. Love it. I mean, I love a good meme. Yeah, that's for sure. I I, I I crack up like these days because as stupid as they are, I still like love them. You know, um, they're a good way to transfer them. an idea in a succinct way. Uh, I don't think people appreciate them enough. Uh, they kind of get bogged down uh, in bullshit, but it is a good way to convey information to a five-year-old, which is, I think, a sign of genius. If you can explain something to somebody something you know, simply. That's like kind of an interesting uh, way to segue into like something I thought about while I was watching M actually. Um, you know, we were talking about 1931 where there isn't very much, um, there's no, there's no cell phones. Right. Um, and there's a lot of different technologies. Now you could never make a movie like M the same way. Um, and in a way I was kind of, it kind of made me sad, you know, that like these films like, and their impact, they still last today, but like you can't make a film anymore, at least with current day, that doesn't really have to do like, you know, if, if there's always the age old thing like, oh, cell phone service doesn't work. And so like, you know, you can't follow a person because the service is out, but really like, everybody would have their cell phone in like a modern world, you know? Um, so I love watching old films for that too. Like knowing that there's like no such thing as a cell phone. Um, no one can take a picture real quick of them if they see them on the street or anything like that. It's like real sleuthing, real like dangerous ways to like get things done. And uh, yeah, M's got a lot of that, you know, it's like old kind of detective work and stuff like that. I wonder how uh, some people watch, older movies like that when like a pre-technology era like like somebody would would somebody watching m be like why don't they not necessarily like they would understand that there's not you don't have the type of technology but just uh, whether or not like they would be like questioning that like uh, uh why are they not just using more advanced technology or something yeah um, like even like curious. trying to find how like he wrote the note right they like they go to like oh maybe it was on the windowsill because of the grain it's like yeah the, i think those like methods are still in play these days you know like old school detective work but like things like that are we take for granted these days um and all the technology we see in films this movie definitely doesn't utilize those and it still holds up i guess that's my point is like these films hold up and sometimes they're even the stories are even told better without like that modern technology. Uh, I would hope so. I mean, the best stuff should hold up. I mean, uh, half of the, uh, all the Seinfeld episodes would be rendered useless with the cell phone and they still are fucking classic bangers. So <laughs> good point. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't really have too much more to say about uh, um, other than I love it. And I don't know if you had anything else to add to it. I mean, the entire time I was trying to remember uh, where, like, so the song the, uh, you whistled at the very beginning, In the Hall of the Mountain King, this is what Laurie's uh, whistling throughout the whole movie. I couldn't place it at, at first. Uh, I, I could, like, I knew it was like a composition that I had heard plenty of times, but uh, it took me a second to understand where it was coming from. And then uh, it taught me what it was. And it just reminds me of uh, the documentary King of Kong. Uh, that's kind of like the theme song to that movie. They use it quite a bit in that movie. Uh, have you seen King of Khan, the documentary? I haven't. Yeah, that's the, I think I mentioned it um, briefly when we were uh, watching an American movie. Uh, it's like a late 2000s. It's uh, about uh, the um, uh, top score of all time for Donkey Kong Jr. And like, oh, yeah. 
the competition that goes into that. And it's such a great fucking movie about power because it's the people who already have the scores and have access to that information. That's how they maintain having the top scores. It's, it's such a ridiculous like setting for a movie, but it's such like a good uh, composition on how power plays out with it. And so, yeah. Yeah. I feel like at some point we were supposed to do that for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, I've had it on our short list. Oh, we'll definitely cover it at some point, uh, yeah. but yeah, uh, it's such a great movie. And, but yeah, so that's kind of a theme song uh, that sets the tone for that movie and took me a second to realize that's what it was when he was whistling in it, actually. So speaking of good whistling films, I mean, we talked about Tarantino earlier and um, him borrowing from, uh, you know, maybe that monologue had something to do with that. I mean, Tarantino's such a genius about film and he understands like the history of it. I'm sure when he was making Hateful Eight, there was no doubt that he was borrowing that idea from a film like M. But also like, especially there's it's almost funny because you're watching kill bill and i mean everybody knows and like that's probably the the second biggest like whistling movie of all time you know like you can't help but hear that it gets darker and darker is l i think it's um her name's l right uh the daryl hannah's character and she's moving through but it's also utilizing split screen which is like another total brian de palma um it's kind of like those movies are like film geeks like buffet you know like (laughs) what is he borrowing from and like how is he doing it in his own unique way that's what's that's what's so great about a filmmaker like quentin tarantino it's like he's borrowing from the best but making it even better i I, i'm sure you agree i mean tarantino's two of our favorites for sure i got this recently uh finally picked up his new book cinema speculation uh definitely looking forward to reading it uh i haven't haven't opened it yet huh what's that you haven't opened it yet no yeah i haven't got to it finishing up some other books but yeah definitely very excited to get to this one um because yeah like what seeing him transition to the next period of his life um you know 10 movies is what he's been saying for years i definitely believe that he's gonna stick with it uh he's still gonna be working in movies uh just not you know directing them uh himself but like uh, i do believe that he's going to finish with the 10 movies and and so it's pretty exciting to see like what uh, the rest of his uh, career is going to play out like so yeah you know he's funny because he he'll say that stuff and then um i remember one thing that he was doing on the heels of uh once upon a time uh in hollywood and he's just said he's like look i've seen the directors who have done more than 10 films it's not yeah. great <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, right, to right. go off like, and it, again, it makes sense, like, because he's such a student of film. It's like, got, I mean, he's been obsessed with film like his entire life, um, and so it makes sense that that's kind of the um, conclusion that he's come to for himself after so many years. Is that like uh, I've seen just too many people uh, crash and burn at the end of their career, and he he cares about his legacy more than anything. He definitely seems like that kind of person. It was like he, where he's looking, uh, w- like what are people going to think of me in seventy five, one hundred years? Looking back on film in the nineties and two thousands, and I, I again, I, de- I definitely believe that he's going to finish off this last movie. Um, I'm hoping for a horror movie. Uh, he's definitely mentioned that he's possibly. Uh, gonna do that but uh we'll see what he finishes out with well, i can't wait to discuss it on here as soon as he does because um 
that is pretty monumental. And you're right. He's very under, he has a very keen understanding of, you know, the legacy that you leave behind as an artist, you live forever and how you are talked about, um, after you're gone is usually not up to you. Um, unless you make really good art and people can enjoy it for years to come, just like in Babylon, when, when that scene uh, is told to, to Brad Pitt, you know, you're a goat, you'll be a ghost with all your friends on the screen forever. He knows his stuff. And I've, uh, a different topic on uh, Tarantino, but I've definitely enjoyed people going crazy at his uh, comments that uh, we're currently in one of the weaker uh, periods of film ever. Um, he's definitely, he's, he's been straight up saying, it's like, yeah, right now we are in a downswing uh, in terms of quality of film, uh, and general output, uh, from auteurs and whatnot. So a lot of I was talking with somebody the other day and, um, about A24. Do you like A24 films? Love it. I, I have uh, a, a list of, uh, A24 series that we're going to be doing uh, at some point soon. Well, great. Because. I, I love their stuff too, but I was talking to somebody the other day and they were kind of likening their production in a way to like the old studio system and how obviously the old studio systems had all their players, you know, their stars, but they also had their, um, you know, production and everything in-house and was all kind of like a machine. And somebody was kind of likening A24's output to kind of like that. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting uh, topic. The one thing I didn't really agree with is that the quality like that the quality is suffering because of that and um because of just trying to get all these films out i mean every four film i've seen has been fantastic yeah I, I i definitely don't know enough about their like their business side and like how they operate uh right. hiring and and, man, and and producing uh but it's clear to anybody is that their priority is to give as much autonomy to directors as possible like that's yeah. just by far like their mission statement you could just you don't even have to like have them say it. you could just see it by just looking at the movies that they've put out over the last like 15 years whatnot um yeah i mean again you know i mean even when films in a down era downswing of an era there's like always oh, going to be great movies it's just i guess yeah. he was like largely commenting on the upper echelon of uh, production companies, uh, most notably like MCU and whatnot, and like how that dominates so much of film production, like right now. And when you look at MCU, that that is truly like the old school film system uh, where the director is completely interchangeable. Um, you know, with like Disney, so many Disney movies have like hired good directors and then fired them like halfway through because they're not making the movie that they want to be made. Mm. Um, the director is just so interchangeable. There's so many great directors who have made MCU movies that you would never know that that's like one of their movies because it's they're clearly not the ones making the decisions. And it really is because those fucking movies make so much money that like it really sets the template for what gets into theaters these days. Money, right. I mean, it's always comes back to that. I, that sounds stupid, but it's true. You know, like, Hey, if something's making a ton of money, why, why, why mess that up? I mean, so this goes into the, the, the book I am reading right now. So this is the good, big goodbye. Uh, this is about Chinatown uh, uh, from Sam Wasson. And so it covers like the four major players of Chinatown. Um, Roman Polanski director, Robert Eddins, uh, Robert Evans producing 
um, Jack Nicholson, obviously, and then um, Robert Town writing the script. So like really covers all four of their stories and how that movie came together. I mean, it really sets the tone for like the auteur uh, uh, era in the 70s and like what it was like before. And so like how much effort they had to put in to make this type of movie in the way that it was made at the time, which set I've off some, like- I've heard some stories. I can't imagine that book's gotta be like all encompassing with all those great stories about making Chinatown. Yeah. It's so good. I haven't- and on, I on the heels of like the Sharon Tate murders, you know? Right. And so that's, it's, it is a, a good, that's what uh, like a good, like uh, 50, 60 pages, like kind of um, dedicates to Polanski's part to like his, him like, picking up the pieces after like the years of like, after that, after that happened and then just getting back into movies kind of with uh, Chinatown. So um, yeah, great book. Uh, I've not, and actually have not seen Chinatown in a long time. So I definitely need to revisit it after I uh, finish this book. So one thing I have never seen is the sequel to two Jakes. Um, two Jakes. I've never seen it either. Yeah. I've never seen it. And I know, I think, uh, Jack Nicholson had a lot to do with that, actually. So I'd be interested in seeing that. Maybe a double feature. He might have directed it. Uh, yeah, he might have. I know he had a lot to do with it. Yeah, I know. And that's the other thing. It's like I always kind of forget like how much he was kind of a behind the scenes guy uh, back in the day. Like he was directing movies and writing movies before like he became like a big star in the 70s. So a lot of those guys were like that, like Michael Douglas with uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Um, I believe Michael Douglas owns the rights to Cuckoo's Nest and wanted to get that made. Um, yeah, yeah, he produced it. Yeah, which is it's like that was like even before he became before an you actor. Knew him as an actor, you know, say it again before you knew him as an actor. Yeah, exactly. Which is uh, crazy. Oh, man, I rewatched Cuckoo's Nest uh, last year. Oh, that was one of the best rewatches I've had of that movie. That's so good. Um, I'm feeling pretty good about our talk about M. I'd love to transition to a little bit of a world events, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Uh, amazing, amazing, no, no. I mean, amazing capper to this uh, Fritz Lang double feature. Two great fucking movies. Uh, yeah. Certainly, I would say the two he's most well known for. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you hadn't seen him in a long time like me, or if you've never seen him, definitely those are the two to check out and you'll definitely see why this... Uh, this fucking guy was such an influence in the 20s and 30s, like in the infancy of film. So, yeah, once you get into a Fritz Lang like rabbit hole, it's hard to get out because he has so many movies, uh, you know, started in Germany with silence, transitions to talkies in, in, in the States. Um, a lot to learn from his magic and his art. And yeah, I'm glad we did this. It's great to start there. I think we're going to, you know, move on to some uh, more current films, if I'm not mistaken, in the next weeks coming up. But it was cool to kind of go back there, kind of start. And also with the time period of Babylon and everything, being able to cover that, you know, that being in theaters, the transition from talkies and, or I'm sorry, silence to talkies. It's, it, it all kind of seemed to be the right timing for us to, to explore these films um, together. Hell yeah. It's what I'm here for, man. Look yeah. forward to it all the time. Love it. We've been talking these movies for years. Hopefully, keep that going. So, so we're going um, to almost feel like we should be like doing a Elvis like themed, you know, because like we just lost Lisa Marie Presley, man. It's kind of hit me pretty hard. Uh, yeah, this is a uh, news last weekend. But man, I've been thinking about her a lot and just kind of like that Elvis is like such a 
favorite of mine. I love Elvis. And, and she was such a cool champion of Elvis's, you know, legacy and everything like that. And made sure to have the Graceland be like, you know, um, place where everybody could go and walk through and, and her and Priscilla both, you know, um, she had such a hard time with her son committing suicide, um, the last couple of years. And I just, uh, uh, feel feel badly for that family of you know I don't know them of course but I love Elvis so much and uh, I don't know it hit me kind of hard how about you mm, I, yeah I didn't know that about uh, her losing her son like that um, yeah that was she, she was at the the Golden Globes like the night before yeah yeah, yeah. okay so that's that's right I remember seeing it, like it was just like so a lot of people were just like oh I, I saw her in a picture with um, Austin Butler. Austin Butler, yeah, which, um, yeah, talk about poetic, having that picture with him and then passing away the next day. Um, well, I'll tell you what, we'll definitely have to cover Carpenter's Elvis because uh, I've definitely been wanting to rewatch that one. I don't even know about this. Oh, you don't? Oh, he, he John Carpenter, he made a TV movie uh about elvis a biography in 79 i think wait a minute you don't know about it you so you don't know i don't who, know anything about john carpenter making a tv movie about elvis i know nothing okay so you don't know who plays elvis then is that what you're saying right was it kurt russell yep okay in his version <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'm just saying like i mean that's that puts them over the top uh, i haven't seen it in so long yeah it was a, it was a tv movie he made in 79 kurt russell playing elvis so uh we'll definitely be yeah. covering we'll definitely be covering plenty of kurt uh well yeah kurt russell but uh carpenter on the podcast so whatever series we do we'll have to start it off with uh elvis. Dude, where can you even find that uh i mean we had it at suncoast uh i remember like holding a dvd either i don't know if we like actually had it normally or maybe like somebody like had a special order uh maybe i special ordered it i don't even remember <laughs> <laughs> that's totally it's yeah. totally possible um man talk about a privilege uh when you were working on a movie you just special order whatever movie you wanted at any time uh yeah. back when you couldn't watch something uh streaming uh on demand um uh, i didn't even know that yeah i mean i feel like almost maybe like isn't there like a isn't it leaving Las Vegas with like uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, where there's like a bunch of Elvises and that? Maybe we need to do like the films that like uh, like shitty Elvis picks or something. Like not films with Elvis, but like shitty Elvis films. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm done. I mean, it's, it was definitely. I don't know if it was the first time. I mean, Kurt Russell was in an Elvis movie. I know that. Um, and then he he played um, Elvis in Forrest Gump. Uh, he just did that voice for that one cameo when he meets Elvis in the, in the beginning, you know, really, I had no clue about that. That's either. yeah. That's Kurt Russell doing the the voice for that. And then there was like one other, sh- there's some gold right now. There's wow. a shitty, what's it called? I think it's called 3000 miles of Graceland. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's probably a shitty Elvis movie we could do. That's with, uh, yeah. You know why? Because that's with, uh, that's with uh, Kevin Costner. Yeah. Kevin Costner. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't think I've ever seen that one, but I, I definitely remember Kurt Russell dressed up as uh, Elvis jumping off a plane or something uh, that that doesn't uh, once I saw that uh, when I was younger that didn't leave my mind so well I'm going to transition into my song pick of the week because I've been listening to Elvis like crazy like I listen to Elvis like crazy no matter what like I'm always listening to Elvis I don't know what it is but I fucking love Elvis man and uh, my song pick of the week is going to be uh, the blue the song Blue Moon Um, and you can find it specifically on the HBO series, The Searcher. Um, there's a really great moment in that where um, 
Have you seen, by the way, The Searcher? I have not. Oh, man. Okay. You, you got to watch that as soon as possible. It's like a two-part series that came out um, like two or three years ago. And there's this part when this song, it's called um, Blue Moon. It's, you know, everybody's heard the song Blue Moon before. Oh, yeah. But it's Elvis singing it while he was in the service, I believe. Um, and there's a moment where uh, Bruce Springsteen is talking about it's such a great way to splice it. He's saying there's a moment when all singers kind of discover what they sound like on, you know, tape or whatever. And you can kind of hear Elvis like going, you know, singing the song. And it's just really like he's exploring his voice in the recording. And of course, it's Elvis, so it's amazing. But the point was, uh, in the documentary that like this is early Elvis this is like a special treat because it was like recorded and it's kind of messy and stuff like that and you get to hear Elvis like really raw before he was even like um, knew he was going to be this huge uh, singer so that's my pick um, or I'm sorry not Blue Moon uh, yeah that's so the story is that <laughs> the story is that yeah, uh, yeah, I'm 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 right there with you. I'm okay. I'm on I'm on the right. Sorry, yeah, uh, the story <laughs> is that except for being in the service, the service yeah. part wasn't there. It was early in his career, and he was like figuring it out. The song I wanted to pick—that's <laughs> a good story. Anyway, go watch the documentary. The surgery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mona Lisa is the one because Lisa Marie Presley for her. Uh, you know, it's that's the one that he did in the service, and that he hmm. was um, kind of like really kind of just by himself kind of recording it or whatever so it's mona lisa for lisa marie presley rest in peace uh elvis fans both you and i very big hell yeah oh wait a minute okay so i did get lost which which one do you pick or we can do both mona lisa or blue moon uh, you, you pick both are great if you're listening to this uh and not just reading it in the blurb go listen to both they're yeah. amazing recordings early elvis without a full band or anything they're both tunes of him just uh singing with I mean him. I'm gonna put both on the list we okay. definitely we need to beef up our uh, Elvis on that list by the okay. way okay all right yeah, yeah. so <laughs> what's no your problem. song of the week what do you what do you got going uh I'll drop it in a second uh but now I'm thinking about songwriting I so I sent you that uh um oh that <laughs> link about Nick Cave so chat GPT uh is obviously some of the first user-friendly um AI uh, that people uh, can actually utilize. And so somebody uh, used it to create a song, quote, in the style of Nick Cave, and then sent the song to Nick Cave. And he wrote an entire essay about uh, AI uh, and, and the Red Hand Files, which was a great newsletter. If you don't subscribe, he, um, he's just always uh, writing to his fans about art and life and whatnot. And so he shows the song and uh, just sounds off on like what AI is going to be doing for life and for humanity. And just in short, he's definitely not a fan of it at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the meme was just like, that song sucks. <laughs> I mean, so the way that was the guardian and it is true, but the way they put, they set up that uh, uh, um, um, article, it looks like an onion article, just like the, the like a uh, Nick Cave re reacts to AI. This song sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but it was actually how it played out so 
Um, I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. his hands but man, like I just been like it is here. Like I think I put like a book, a great this great book uh, last year. It was like 21 authors um, on AI, and a couple of them did like uh, talk about the implications on art, and that's it's unfortunately going to be like one of the unsaid, un, unappreciated like challenges of like what AI is going to do to humanity if like if this. Uh, I mean, I enjoy to write quite a bit creatively, but like AI can already probably write something better than I can in terms of like a song <laughs> or a screenplay. So we certainly can't do of like it can't match you know great artists. It never uh, never will in terms of like the experience of it. But like AI probably could write a better song than I could uh, right now. And so it's yeah, just, that's a tough uh, yeah. Tough, that's a tough thing for someone whose livelihood depends on you know art selling art and music you know yeah. that, that's that's how i make a living so i've thought about that uh very little to be honest with you um i don't <laughs> good, really, good. I, I i mean i don't mean that in like a weird way i mean no. yeah you know, kind of like um i what up like there's all in like a creative field there's always so many things coming at you and so like right to be online and see somebody else's art that you think is great and better than you it's like you could sit there and you could, you know, get lost in that. And then like that impedes like your progress as an artist uh, to do the work. All you can do is just put your head down and just continue to go forward. But I do have to admit that I wince when I like look through Instagram or whatever. And I see people, you know, posting their fucking AI art picture profile pictures. <laughs> honestly look better than most artists could paint. Um, it's a little it's a little annoying that like, I think more so what's annoying about that is that the people don't think before they do it, that they're thinking, Oh yeah. Like, look at how cool this is. And maybe it just needs, like a lot of people would say, well, maybe it just needs to be that. Like it's fun and everything. They're not thinking about what it does to like somebody else's profession. You know, it's kind of like in the pandemic when a lot of people were like, not really giving a shit about the nurses that are taking care of you. You know, it's like, dude, people are, fucking seeing people die all the time like you know could you maybe put your mask on you know like when you walk yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean to get political i'm just saying like people don't always think about other people's professions and what other people are going through um when they do that kind of stuff and maybe it's not their job to do that but yeah when i have to see it when you're cruising instagram and stuff like that it's kind of like all right well you know I just spent 20, 24 hours painting something that you just did in two seconds and posted on your profile. Okay. You know, that's it. Yeah, no, I've been calling out everybody uh, in their vanity selfies uh, uh, in, in light of uh, the true artist. So I got, I got your back, man. I'm going to be yeah. uh, shitting on them left and right for, but I mean, if there's stuff. a song that's being written by AI and you listen to it and you kind of like fucking love it, but you don't know who wrote it. And then all of a sudden some, someone tells you AI, like, well, were you pleasant? Was it, are you pleasantly aloof? You know, you don't really, <laughs> yeah. you like the song, but now you know it's made, it's made by a computer. I don't know, but you know. Well, to quote Nick Cave, this song sucks, so. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I'll send you the Red Hen Files because it's a great, uh, it's not a long essay, but he, he, I think you'll enjoy what he has to say about it. And um, For sure, please do. From what it is. Um, all right, yeah, so my pick this week, I've been, uh, re-listening um, to the first four albums uh, of uh, this uh, great black metal band that I've, I fucking love, uh, Tribulation. 
Uh, they're from uh, Sweden. Um, I've seen them a couple times live um, several years ago. They fucking kick ass live. Um, and so uh, the song I have is The Hour of the Wolf, uh, Black Metal, so fucking great. And this is off their last full album uh, within the last year or two. They do have um, some um, shifting in their lineup. I think I know their lead guitarist uh, has departed to work on other projects. So um, I know they have a new album coming out uh, this year. And so it's probably going to be taking a, a new direction for the band. But like, man, they're, I'm sorry, as I said four, I think they have five albums, but all five of their albums are fucking great. Um, and so definitely like to always talk up this band because like I said, sound great, great live. Uh, love the Swedish and, uh, and the Danish metal bands. Uh, I always have a special place in my heart uh, for them. Uh, they definitely just are able to uh, sing about darkness while coming from the most positive <laughs> place in, in the world. Uh, sometimes. Is there like any it's, other kind of like black metal than like if it's is it considered black metal if it's not Swedish or Danish? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, black metal is more kind of more of towards like the goth kind of metal, I, yeah. I, I think, uh, in that way. And yeah, a lot of it does come out of the the Netherlands and whatnot. Um, but, you know, it comes from other places. But yeah, just generally, like the metal that comes out of that area is I fucking love it. Dude, it, it, you like Ghost, right? Yeah, Ghost, great. Yeah, I, I, I actually just uh, pulled up the, their most recent album, which I have not listened to. Um, but yeah, they're definitely a fun band. Because again, I like a lot of different metal. But yeah, it is. I do lean towards the uh, the more melodic stuff well, i can't know. wait to hear this band because i love ghosts so if it's anything like that you know yeah i mean def- they they lean hard into the mel- uh, melodies and uh, uh with the gruff with the gruff metal voice so at the same time but uh some great compositions uh and again i saw them at um they were with um deaf heaven at the metro uh which was a great fucking show and i saw them at the subterranean uh they fucking kick ass live so God, I can't imagine you being at that show, just like with all these like goth, like you know, people walking around, and here's you like uh, in the middle of the, the pit or something. I mean, I wear black. I'm all black right now, so I just kind of fit in. You fit uh, in yeah. and my beard was super big, so oh, I was okay. definitely fitting in with the metal crowd there. You know, yeah. you know, I, I I can like weave in and out of a lot of different uh, uh, social circles uh, based on uh, how I dress and how I maintain my. Uh, facial hair so yeah that's true i love that yeah um yeah so that's my song for the week hour of the wolf fucking rules you know that uh, reminds me of the time like uh we went to uh richard's and i know you don't smoke cigarettes you did why you just had to go to richard's and that was yeah, for anyone yeah. who's listening it doesn't know richard's is like the only bar you can still smoking because i think they just pay the fine every time they get fined and like I walk in there, I had bought a brand new winter coat, fucking freezing in Chicago, like it always is. I meet Pat, and he's he's only wearing a black jean jacket per usual, you know, no no winter jacket. And we're having a beer in there, and uh, everyone's smoking cigarettes like I've never seen before. And I have to get my jacket dry cleaned after that because I smelled like you know 2002 uh, hanging out at the bars. It was crazy. Shit, I forgot to send you uh, the uh, payment for that because uh, I told you I was going to take care of that uh, dry cleaning receipt. Did you really? I, dude, I don't even care. Like, to have that memory, <laughs> to have that story, that's the payment, man. That was a great time. I'm so glad we did that. And anytime anyone talks about Richards, I always think about uh, hanging out oh, yeah. with you. 
I think when we were there, they had like this ridiculous uh, strung up poster of like Goodfellas. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, that's like ridiculous looking, but it fucking rules at the same time. So, yeah, that's a Chicago staple. Um, uh, is that in a, what, what area of the city is that? In? Would you call that? Um, uh, that is not River North, is it? I mean, it's on Milwaukee. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like an in between. I mean, it's almost to Wicker Park, so you know. Well, anyway, you guys time. want to smell like cigarette smoke and have a you know an old style in Chicago. Um, you can't get like any more Chicago than Richards. <laughs> Hell yeah! Well, I got a couple more questions as we wind down. I want to know how your show went, which I'm very jealous that I missed. Uh, I saw some pictures; looks like it kicked ass. So, dude. I don't even know where to start. It was awesome. Um, nice. weekend, you know, for us. Um, so the first TLB show uh, since 2018, um, we ended up playing it like acoustic because um, my brother wasn't sure if he's going to be able to come out. Um, mm. And he flew in last minute, you know, for like an insanely expensive flight. But he finally got here and it was too late to kind of get a bass player. I didn't want someone to like learn how to play all the bass parts. And then my brother couldn't come out because then Tom and I were just going to do it acoustic. But anyway, ended up being really cool. Um, had a great time with those guys, like me, Eric and Tom hanging out the whole time. Uh, just really like getting some bro time in. We hadn't done that in forever. We got to play the songs together, talked about the new record we're going to do. And really impressed with the bands that we played with and the people that we played with and and, and i'll tell you what, um this guy caesar put the show together out there in san bernardino in this amazing perfect like old building from the 1940s it looked like literally what we were just talking about in m like this old cool structure building was awesome it was pouring rain show was sold out hmm. Oh, yeah. people in the pouring rain and the pouring rain out here is different than it is in chicago because everyone doesn't know how to drive no one no one's used to the rain you know it's like it's a little dangerous and so all these people came out to the show um you have our band tlb then you have uh, unsound sunday which is this guy caesar's band and he put together the show um made it real comfortable for everybody who was playing this band damage that i played with at punk rock or that i uh, met at the punk rock and paintbrushes event those guys are made up of two of the people from lady gaga so tim the guitar player and then the bass player um johnny they're both in lady gaga's band oh they shit started awesome. their own punk band it's kick-ass in fact that should have been my song of the week maybe next week i'll point out a damage song but anyway if you're listening to this go check out damage go check out unsound sunday they're great um a bunch of other artists um a guy who's playing ukulele there like it was the coolest eclectic crowd. And then my girlfriend's comedy troupe got to like do in between um, kind of pumping up the crowd for each band. So like they got to be a part of it and it made for like, it, it felt like it did when we were younger playing music because we all came together, all of these different walks of life. The reason I'm telling you, like these guys were in Lady Gaga's band and, you know, yeah. you know, obviously Tom's in the play where T's in our band and, you know, also, bands that mm, you might not have ever heard before we're all like doing this on a very like small level just to be like the way we were and the the kicker of it all was um this band dumb bitches with internet which i'm a huge fan of now um 
the guy from Stranger Things is in that band. And so they headlined and like brought down the, the, the house. And so there's all these like kind of big players, but it didn't feel like that. It just felt like literally a Lombard common show. Like one of our first shows, we we're all just like growing down, like met so many cool people in the crowd. It was the best show to have back that we've, that I could have imagined. Um, and it'll be a great memory and we, we hope to build on it to continue to play. And we're trying to do that again out here in LA. So, you know, when you find like a bunch of cool people that like love it the way you do, kind of like me and you with Remainders where you get to have these great conversations, uh, there's nothing like that. And I've missed that. Oh yeah. Partly due to the pandemic and other things, but like the camaraderie that you have of just going outside your front door to actually like, go somewhere, go to a show, go to a movie, the people you meet, you know, there's nothing like that. And I think we lost that for a little while with the pandemic, but this was a great reminder of why we got to continue to go out there and play shows and be in front of people and just have the feeling of being together, you know, on stage and off. So thanks for asking. Yeah, love to hear that it went well, man. I, like I said, I saw the picture you were posting and it definitely, from what I saw, it definitely had that uh, small show vibe, even though like plenty of people were there, but like the, the venue itself, it definitely gave that like a DIY uh, vibe that I loved uh, seeing. And Yeah, and you know, the other thing about it is like all those folks that like were watching the shows, like when the, you know, they had downtime or whatever, you walk around, it's a gallery. So all my arts, my art's yeah. going to be there for the next month. It's on display and for another month. And oh, yeah. um, that's like the other cool thing. It's like melding the art with the music. Um, I don't think we've ever really did that out in Chicago. So it's kind of, we're building that out here, you know? Love the shirt, by the way. That's one of yours, right? This is my, I, I've been yeah. getting like a lot of compliments on this. Um, yeah, this is a design I made. We lost our beloved P22 here in, in California. And um, this is my tribute, uh, P22 forever, the Hollywood mountain lion. Um, it's hard to explain to people like, but this is like the biggest celebrity sighting you could have. Like if you're in Los Feliz and you happen one night to be walking through and you see a mountain lion walking around, like you couldn't be more ecstatic. I know that sounds crazy, but because there was only one mountain lion in those hills and P-22 had no mate, um, had got, come from the, the mountains of, in Santa Monica and crossed mm. over the freeway, which if you know anything about the freeway to, to, to cross over to those mountains, you would have been hit and killed like in a second, which is kind of why it's crazy um, when, P-22 passed away, um, got hit by a car on, on Los Angeles Boulevard. And Damn. Yeah, it's, it's kind of tragic, but it, it meant so much to so many people. And they're doing like a celebration of life at the Greek theater in February. And me and my girlfriend are like, we got to go. And I, so I made this shirt that's for sale over at DarrenBurrell.com, along with other things. Um, if you want to have a, you know, cool little uh, reminder of, the coolest mountain lion in Hollywood, the biggest celebrity you could sighting you could have. Hell yeah. I didn't know much of that actually. Yeah. Uh, it got me thinking of completely off topic. I mean, well, not really for this show, but uh, one of the opening scenes in six feet under uh, there is a mountain lion. Death. <laughs> really? It's, it's set in California. So it's, it's not P22, but uh, it, yeah, uh, it's, I forget it, which season it is, but there's it is one of the more ridiculous uh, death scenes in the being. If you haven't seen the show, like every single episode begins with a death, and 
there's a runner who just gets mauled by a mountain lion. That's right. I, I actually <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I, wow. And I just watched that too. I, I can't believe I forgot it. How far into it uh, are you? Uh, I know we you're took, on a We took a little bit of a break because of the yeah. Uh, holiday. Yeah. We were watching holiday movies and stuff like that. And then like because of the show and everything, we haven't been able to get, like, I'm pretty excited. I get to see my girlfriend tonight for the, the first time. And like, we, oh yeah. Dude, you know how it goes with like, um, you know, the new year and everything. We're both like trying to figure out what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so we're like going to get together tonight. I'm excited about that. And uh, hopefully pick back up on Six Feet Under and I'll let you know next week. You know, where we're at. I mean, I think we're going to eventually have to cover the pilot episode or something just to say we did that and maybe go from there. Because uh, we definitely have lots to say about that show because it's, you know. One of the best shows of all time. It's fucking yeah, great. I Love think it. you and I is my, gonna be like both collectively our favorite show of all time. Oh, it's so good. We'll definitely talk a little bit. But um, all right, so enough yeah. about me. Everything good with you? you oh, everything's fun. great. Uh, I had a pretty fun on on that Saturday when your show was going on. I went to see Nightmare on Elm Street two at the Music Box, oh. um, which was great. Um, I mean, the gayest horror film of all time. Uh, and it has become like such a cult classic because of that. And it's so great to see that. So I didn't even realize Mark Patton, the star of it, he was going to be there, but he got sick. So Jack Shoulder, the director, ended up showing up, taking his place. And I did not realize Jack Shoulder also directed uh, the 80s horror movie, uh, The Hidden, um, which is fucking fantastic. It's definitely on our list. And we're definitely going to cover it at uh, some point on this show. So it was it was awesome to see him there, present the movie, take questions afterwards, talk about it. Um, and yeah, it's definitely a very fun watch. It was packed, man. People fucking love that movie uh, still, you know, just like all the Nightmare on Elm Streets, but especially that one. So it's definitely yeah. good to see that. So I'm never not sitting here jealous of you for, you know, all of your music box hangs that you get to do. I mean, so I'm going to the music box tonight. Because going circling back to uh, John Carpenter, they're starting John Carpenter month, and tonight they're playing a 4K restoration of Assault on Precinct 13, which is wow. still one of my favorite uh, Carpenter movies. Uh, early one from him, basically a remake of Rio Bravo. If you haven't seen it, um, one of my favorite scores by him, by the way, like uh, such a great fucking uh, score. Uh, obviously, one of his original compositions. So it's definitely going to be fun to see that with a crowd. I've definitely never seen that screened anywhere. So no. um, that was an it's early nice one. We, we not passed the remake. What's that? Nice to know it's not the remake that you're watching. You know, I've never. I don't think I've seen any of those remakes with that in that mid two thousands period when they started remaking all of his movies. Yeah. I don't think I've seen any of I'm not against watching any of I just never got to, uh, I just never took the time to see it. That one's with um, Ethan Hawke, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So that I re- could be I never cool. saw it either, I must admit. Maybe it's yeah. good, but like, why remake it? Fucking yeah. Fun. I mean, it is what it is, but uh, oh man, the original is so fucking great. So I'm very excited uh, they're playing that. And then, yeah, later in the month, they're playing Escape from New York and uh, They Live. So the, the more popular staples. Um, and then also, uh, I'm, I'm continuing with the Billy Wilder uh, marathons. They've been playing uh, Billy Wilder movies every week uh, for matinees. I've caught the first two for that, and they're playing uh, Double Indemnity uh, this uh, this weekend. So I'll go catch that one. You feel like you're uh, in in Hollywood with me uh, watching that film. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I caught uh, Ninochka which, with uh, Greta Garbo. I'd never seen that one. I've never uh, seen it yeah, it was just a, he didn't direct it. I think it was just his screenplay. Um, 
and that one was great. I don't think I'd ever seen a Greta Garbo movie. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, no, I haven't seen that either. There, there's Irma LaDuce I've seen, which is like a little bit of an obscure one of his with uh, Shirley MacLaine. And then, what was that one called? Uh, Irma LaDuce. No, I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Uh, Shirley MacLaine film. Uh, obviously, The Apartment Rules. Yeah. Um, and uh, Stalag 17, if you've never seen, is great. I love that one with Bill Holden. Yeah, Ernst, uh, Ernst Lubitsch uh, directed Ninochka. Uh, based on his screenplay and I think that was like I think he got nominated for the screenplay so I think that was one of his like uh, early kind of ones uh, getting recognition. One of my favorite things about going to the art museum out here is like looking at like who you know had given as a gift the art to the museum so yeah. LACMA always has like you know like any place does the little like tag and it's like a lot of the art in there is from the Billy Wilder collection. Oh hell yeah love it. Oh. Right on the street the other day, I had my girlfriend drive me by because I was like such a freak about it. I was watching Double Indemnity, and the only place that's close by to my place that they filmed at was um, Fred McMurray's um, um, apartment. And then you know how they go into the the like he drops off his car in the in the ground level. That's like literally down. I could walk there from here. It's pretty awesome. Love it. Oh, so jealous. I know, man. Chicago's great, but man, missing out on a lot of cool stuff like that. So <laughs> it's all right. You know, I'm a freak about that stuff. I love seeing all these uh, locations and everything. It's like one of my favorite things to do. You get the historical context. Yeah. Um, yeah and then, I mean, so one last thing. Have you ever been to an Alamo Draft House, uh, the theater? I don't think so. No, you're familiar with it. I mean, it I started. Familiar. Yeah, yeah. I know, I, uh, so I guess I mean it started in Austin. It's been around since like the late '90s, but just never in Illinois. Uh, I think they maybe have like 20 theaters, uh, but they're finally opening one in Chicago. Actually, just like less than like four blocks from my house, so it's like right um, down the street, uh, maybe a block or two from Wrigley. Uh, I'm pretty excited to check that out because they, from what my understanding is they do pretty heavy on like the uh, throwback screenings um, where like they play like, like that's it. yeah, like Sorry. they play all the major movies uh, that are big at the time, obviously major releases, but then like on almost a nightly basis, they have throwback movies. And like, I mean, I saw, I was looking at one of them uh, last week, they were just randomly playing the Lord of the Rings extended edition, not just the oh, original, but man. they were playing the extended edition, which fucking is four like hours music, music to my fucking ears that you're uh, going out of your way to play the extended edition. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're opening one in Chicago. So I'm excited to check that out. And their first weekend, they're doing a Michael Mann double feature. Uh, it took me a second to even realize that, but they're doing Thief and um, Public Enemies, obviously two uh, Chicago-based movies. So that yeah. kind of makes sense that that uh, their double feature that they're starting with. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm just definitely excited to check out their kind of vibe. Um, and again, like it being so close, uh, I think that it'll be uh, really cool to check out. James Conn and Johnny Depp, right? Oh, classics. I mean, we're definitely gonna cover. I've actually never seen Public Enemies, uh, but oh. Thief is Thief is definitely a favorite of mine. So. Yeah, I would say that um, that seems to be really what's happening and like the way people are getting people out to the theaters now is just like these throwback, you know, um, vintage um, prints, you know, like it actually being the print from when it was made and things like that. The, the more vintage, like the like the new Beverly, right? And yeah, you know, Los Feos 3 does it in there. 
bigger theater the more vintage it is and like the more throwback the better and like the more kitschy um people seem to be really like going back to the theater for that kind of stuff i, li- I like that i agree with you plus avatar uh one of the best <laughs> movies of the year uh fucking crushing it at the theaters everybody and their fucking mother is going to see that movie because it's fucking great um dude so check it out i was just uh watching like an improv thing with my girlfriend and before it um before she came on they were talking about that saturday night live skit about how like avatar you the papyrus <laughs> you text you that's know, right with uh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, is that gosling yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i remember and that dude i was laughing so <laughs> fucking hard it was such a good skit i forgot all about yeah. I saw Cameron comment on that and he thought it was hilarious. And he was just like, I had no idea even it was called Papyrus. He was like, my art team just showed me this. And it was like, this is this is the one I'm going with. And he was like, I didn't even know, I didn't even know this was this some lame font that everybody already made fun of even before I used it. So but then it was like so Cameron. He was just like, he's just doing what he's doing, regardless of like what other people are saying. And that's what makes the fucking movie so great. So yeah. Well, all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to catch up on this episode, man, of M. Great talk about M. Lisa Marie Presley passing away. Our picks of the week, death metal or black metal. Um, talking about Richards, which I didn't expect. And then we're, you know, having this great conversations uh, all over. So thanks a lot for listening to this episode, everybody. Um, we love doing it. We love doing these uh, conversations. We'd love for you to get in on the conversation. Let us know uh, what you're thinking. If there's some, some recommendations, we'd love to take those. Um, and Or if you have any comments or if we got anything wrong. I mean, it's possible we could have gotten a few of our facts wrong. So, hey, we're human. We're not AI just yet. I claim no uh, responsibility for any of the bullshit that comes out of my mouth. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. disclaimer. So well, awesome. Great to talk with you, man. Um, as it is Friday, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to have a beer tonight and I'm going to finish my next painting that I'm working on, which has a little bit of something to do with the movies I'll share because it'll Oof. probably be done by the next time we talk. Um, but yeah, man, love talking to you. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time. Talk to you later, buddy. Uh, yeah.